Let's pray together, guys, and we will get started. Father, Lord, we just come before you now, and we're so grateful, Lord, to um, be able to sing that truth that you abide with us, not because of anything we have done, Lord, not anything worthy in us, but because you have decided to set your great love upon us, Lord. And so we just pray, Father, as we continue to study through um, the, um, the discipline of biblical theology and all the things that we've been looking at, let this just be another way that we can understand your love for us, um, the extent to which that you went to, uh, to give us your love, to display your love to us, to shower us with your love, and to provide for us, Lord, the, um, the sacrifice uh, through the promise of your seed, through the promise of your son. And so, Father, just be with us now. Give us ears to hear and give us a mind to, to apprehend what your word is teaching and, and uh, give me a mouth to speak and give your people just hearts that rejoice in the truth and uh, help us, Lord, collectively to, to know your word and to know you um, and, and to come into a deeper uh, relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, good. Um, let's see. Uh, my faithful assistant did not show up today, or at least she did not uh, write everything I wanted up there. I didn't tell her to, so I'm not blaming her. But, uh, and I'm not going to write it all back up there, but I will write this, if this works, is that today what we're looking at is the historical unity uh, of biblical theology. Okay, that's, that's really our focus today. But in doing that, I just kind of want to remind us of where we've been. Um, we looked in the Bible for an example of biblical theology. Do you remember what chapter we were in? <coughs> Acts chapter 7, right? Why did we go to Acts chapter 7? And just for any of you that are just trying to catch up to speed with the terminology and the, uh, the theology that we're talking about when we say biblical theology, what we're basically saying is, is how the Bible... Um, uh, sort of progresses throughout the history of the Bible, um, how the historical events unfold, how they relate to one another. So basically what we're talking about is the unfolding of God's story in the Bible. I mean, that's the simplest way to put it, to put something that is actually very, very profound. Um, but that's, that's what we're doing. We went, to, um, we went to Acts chapter 7, and the reason we did that is because in Acts 7 we have whole chapter, 50 some odd verses, where someone in the Bible takes us to a whole takes us through a whole tour of redemptive history, beginning with Abraham and going all the way to Christ. Now you could do that beginning in Adam and going all the way to Christ, right? I mean you could you could begin in any part of the story, Stephen saw fit to begin uh, talking with with us about Abraham. Uh, can you think of any other place in the Bible where someone does essentially what Stephen did? Emmaus. Say yes. Emmaus? Mm-hmm. Okay. Jesus. Um, yes, Jesus there. At least Jesus laid out the framework, right? Mm-hmm. That you, what Jesus said on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, beginning in verse 27, that is where he, he, he tells his disciples, you know, uh, oh, oh, oh foolish man and slow to believe all that the prophets you know had spoken that the Christ must suffer and enter into his glory right all of that and then it says and then beginning with Moses he explained to them all of the things concerning himself in all of the scriptures right and then he he goes through the psalms the prophets and Moses right so that's Jesus kind of laying down the foundation for biblical we could say what Stephen did 
was he took Jesus' advice. <laughs> that's what Jesus, that's what Stephen did. Stephen did what Jesus said you could do. Um, but is there any other place where someone does what Stephen did? What about Paul? Okay. You're not wrong. What book? It's an axe. No, not Mars Hill, but it is uh, Paul in the book of Acts. I have you turn there very good, Marianne. It is Acts 13. And um, uh, there, in Acts 13, we have a very close parallel to um, Acts chapter 17. So if you go there to Acts chapter 13, you'll see that uh, the Apostle Paul basically does the same thing that Stephen does uh, a couple chapters later. But we can discern the same basic progression, which is just amazing. So he goes from patriarchs, right? Um, we could say the patriarchal history, right? Um, after the patriarchal history, this is, this is essentially what, uh, what Stephen did. And he goes to the Mosaic history, right? And then he goes to the Davidic history, that's right. Davidic, prophetic. Um, you could say history, I'm just changing the word uh, eschatology here instead of history for, for a purpose. But um, let's look at that, right? Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse, well, I don't know, we can begin in verse 17. But why don't we just, I guess, read that together. Um, Would somebody be willing to read for us um, Acts chapter 13, verses, uh, I guess we can begin uh, in verse 16 and basically go all the way down to verse 25. Somebody want to read that for us nice and loud? Uh, who can do that for us? Jonathan, you want to do that? Sure. Yeah, nice and loud. <clears throat> Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it. For a period of about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. When he had destroyed seven nations in the, in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. After these things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. After he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will, who will do all my will. From the descendants of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus. After John had proclaimed before his, command, uh, proclaimed before his coming, a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And while John was completing his course, he kept saying, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he, but behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Marvelous. 
Um, if you go back to Acts chapter 7 uh, at the end of Stephen's, uh, his sermon there, at the end of Acts, uh, well, specifically verse 52, remember what he says there? He says there, which one of the prophets that your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, which I think is a reference to the prophets. Uh, the coming of the righteous one, so basically the eschatology of the prophets, right? Um, and notice what, 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 uh, notice what Paul does in Acts 13 here. He adds to the prophetic uh, timeline, if you would, and he takes us all the way to who? John the Baptist. Why to John the Baptist? Does it isn't John the Baptist in the New Testament, Jonathan? Um, in the historical timeline or in the scriptures? <laughs> well, he is in the New Testament, right? He's not in. He's to my knowledge, John is not. Well, you can make a case. Right. <laughs> Malachi, yeah. chapter three, John the Baptist is prophesied there, right? But but, like, but he's yeah. found in the pages of the New Testament. Right. So why does uh, why does Paul take us all the way to the time of John the Baptist. Is it the one that, that um, came in the spirit of Elijah mm-hmm. to turn back the heart of the prophets? Yes, that's right, that's right. He came in the spirit of Elijah, meaning he came um, with Elijah's ministry, prophetic ministry. Uh, how is it possible that John would come in the prophetic ministry of Elijah? Who is John? Is he an apostle? He is a prophet, right? Jesus said the prophets are up until John. So John the Baptist belongs to the prophets of the Old Testament, of the Old Covenant order. <laughs> he is in line with Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, John the Baptist. We don't typically think about that. But what John, the, the reason why it's important that he adds the, uh, he adds the, the, the element of John the Baptist is because by inserting John the Baptist, what Paul does is he brings us prophetically now to the age of fulfillment, right? That's what he does, is that what the earlier prophets had announced by way of eschatology, what they promised, what they prophesied, what they announced, according to Acts chapter 7, verse 52, John the Baptist speaks by way of fulfillment. This is he, right? whose sandals I am unworthy to untie. So what John the Baptist signifies by his ministry is not, uh, it's not that he is announcing the coming of a new age, is that his arrival signals that the age has arrived. Right. So all the other prophets were saying the age of the Messiah is coming. John the Baptist is saying the age of the Messiah has arrived. Uh, but I want you to notice in Acts chapter 13 here, um, same basic structure that we have in Acts chapter 7. He deals with the patriarchal history, verse 17, verse uh, part A there, by referring to the fathers, right? He refers to the Mosaic history in verses 17 through 19. He refers to the Davidic history in verses 20 to 23. And of course, he refers to the prophetic eschatology, John the Baptist, in verses 24 and 25. Same exact thing. By the way, I didn't get this from anybody. I got this from the Bible. I didn't get this from a textbook. I just noticed it, and I was jumping up and down. I thought I discovered something new. <laughs> Nothing new. Okay, I look. Hey, don't credit me with anything new. <laughs> but it is true. It's there. 
if you go, um, if you remember, I said in Acts chapter 7, the same basic structure, patriarchal history, mosaic history, Davidic history, prophetic history, in the same order, of course, because it's redemptive history unfolding before our very eyes. Yes, sir. Um, just mentioning, uh, John the Baptist, being the last prophet, is yeah. he, or no? The last prophet of the Old Testament yeah. era. Yeah, there are prophets in the New Testament. And the disciples being the new, right? Well, the, in, the new, in the New Testament, or the New Covenant, better probably a better way of saying it, yeah. the New Testament times, New Covenant, you know, dispensation, I guess we could use that term, um, the apostles and the New Testament prophets are what belonged to this, uh, this New Covenant dispensation. Uh, by the way, I can show you that. Go to Ephesians chapter 4, I believe. Look at Ephesians chapter, um, I thought it's in chapter 4. I know it's in chapter 2, but I thought 4 says it as well. Um, Alright, I guess we can go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. I thought there was a 4. If you guys think of it. 4.11. Is it 4.11? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, now notice, now notice, yeah, same thing. So we'll go to chapter 2, chapter 11, because no, notice what the Apostle Paul says here. He says here that uh, Jesus gave apostles and some prophets, right? What prophets is he talking about? Anyone? What's that? Okay, Agabus, daughters of Philip. They were, they were considered prophetesses, right? Um, so New Testament prophets, that's what we're saying, Tony, right? It's, he's, talking about, he's not talking about Jeremiah. Right. Jesus did not give Jeremiah. He gave New Testament prophets. So same thing, because look at the order. Prophets, uh, excuse me, apostles first, then prophets. Go back to chapter 2, verse 20. This is maybe even a more explicit uh, a passage because it talks about the church Right, um, the household of God, having been built on the foundation, watch this, of the apostles and the prophets. Um, every you know, I've taught through this passage of, of Ephesians, and every commentator that I read said that the reason why it's apostles and prophets is because here uh, again, Paul is not thinking of Old Testament apostle or Old Testament prophets and New Testament apostles. He's thinking about the apostles and the New Testament prophets. That that's what uh, the new t- new covenant church is built upon. So I'm with them because of the cr- the the order of, <coughs> of of in which he lists them. Um, okay, so uh, we should also point out. I pointed this out. Um, a little bit in Acts chapter 7, but Acts chapter 13, uh, same thing. Uh, if you go back to Acts chapter 13, based on the, um, based on the rejection of the gospel by the Jewish people, look at uh, Acts 13 verse 46, after all this is said and done, that Peter or that Paul was talking about. It says Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, "It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, talking to the Jewish people, since you repudiate it and judge yourself unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us." Now this is very interesting. 
I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you might bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Very interesting. Here, <clears throat> here the apostles are, um, well, here Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas is kind of known as a, as a sort of a less of a, uh, less a less apostle, <laughs> maybe not a technical apostle, capital A, right? But he was sort of a, a apostle in a lower sense, non-technical sense. But uh, notice what they're saying here. They're saying that the the rejection of the gospel by the Jewish people signaled, right, in a sense, the fulfillment of Isaiah forty-two, Isaiah forty-two verse six, Isaiah forty-nine verse six. Um, where there, if you go back to the historical setting of Isaiah, who is Isaiah talking about there? Uh, well, he's talking, what's that? Essentially, or, or I guess we can say is exegetically, right? It is originally intended for the Jewish people. So it has, um, and this is why people talk about that, you know, a lot of this prophetic literature has sort of stages of fulfillment because... As we go, as we increase in redemptive history, remember, right, um, and we go down the timeline of redemptive history, uh, it, there's also an increase in revelation. And so let's say Isaiah 42, I think I said, verse 6, um, initially this is a prophecy that is spoken to Israel. But later on, we're going to find in Isaiah itself that this prophecy is ultimately messianic. So uh, we could say it is ultimately in reference to Jesus. And here the apostles are saying that it's in reference to the apostles, or what we could say, the church. The church is the fulfillment of these prophecies in Isaiah 42 and 49. Why do I say this? Because what happens as the course of redemptive history goes on is that you have Israel rejecting its Messiah, and what is needed, therefore, and this is about as controversial as I'll get today, what is needed, therefore, is the creation or the establishment or the constitution of a new Israel. So what I'm arguing is that the apostles, representative of the church, are the newly constituted Israel of God that are recommissioned by God to preach the gospel to the world. Um, um, okay, maybe I can show you another passage. You think I'm crazy. Uh, Acts chapter 15. What's Acts chapter 15 about? Come on, guys. Presbyterians, turn to this for a very important reason. <laughs> what's that? Pillars of the church. Yeah, so what's Acts 15 about? The Council of Jerusalem. This is, where the, this is where the Jerusalem church is getting together to hash out um, uh, doctrine, to hash out practice, to hash out uh, what do we do? We have a, you know, you've got to remember, the first Christians are what? Jewish. Jewish. And up to this point in redemptive history, as the history of the church you know, all the way from the Old Testament to the New Testament, as it's unfolded, guess what? The promises, uh, this is Psalm 147, verse 20, the promises, the word of God, as Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, the promises, the covenants, um, all, all of these things, the fathers, all of that belongs to who? To the Jewish people, so much so that Paul says, as Gentiles, for a long time, we were alienated. Uh, we, we didn't share in the promises. We had no right to the covenants, 
right, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so now, at the at the at the coming of the church, these Jewish Christians are being confronted with a huge problem. This is kind of part of the reason the Book of Romans is even written, is because what do we do? All these Gentile pagan dogs <laughs> are coming into the covenant. They're coming into the stream of the promise. And, and, and you've got to understand, for, for the Jew, this is what the world looked like. Like a donut. <laughs> this is Israel, right? And everything outside of Israel right, was the Gentile world, and it was profane. Profane. You had to be in the covenant community to be in uh, God's uh, to be in God's holy people, to be to be in the sphere of salvation. Everything outside of Israel was representative of the profane, the unclean. Right. Um, this ultimately, by the way, has a typology to uh, um, not to ethnic Israel, to physical Jerusalem, but to what? Does anybody know? What is it? The what? Yeah, the spiritual Jerusalem, or even we could say the heavenly Jerusalem, right? By the time you get to Revelation 21 and 22, guess what you have statements about? What you have statements about is God saying that as far as, the, let's say, the new Jerusalem, the new Israel, right? The final um, Jerusalem, nothing profane will come in, it says. Nothing. It says outside are what? The dogs. You see that? So it's more evidence that for God, it is God's elect people, his church, that constitute a new Israel outside of which reside the dogs, which is a a way of referring to the unclean, the people that have, uh, because they have not been cleansed by the blood of Jesus, remain filthy, right? That's what Revelation says, let him who be, you know, by the time the end comes, this is why evangelism is so important, right? Because we believe there is no... There is no second chance, not that it's a chance, but you know what I mean. There's no opportunity after death. Once eternity comes, your fate is sealed. Revelation says, let the filthy stay filthy and let the righteous be righteous. It's said, that's it. There's no, there's no more entering into the new Jerusalem if you're not in by the time Christ returns. I mean, this is huge, you know. Um, so, so basically, I, I was taking you to Acts 15 to show you another indication that for the apostles... Um, what the church symbolized was what I would categorize sort of as a reconstituted Israel, a new Israel of God. I would say the true Israel of God, which is comprised of Jews and Gentiles in the church on a spiritual level. Look at Acts chapter 15, verse 13. This is amazing to me. When I first saw this, he says, After they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. And so some say, well, James was the pastor of the church of Jerusalem. And that's why he stood up as an authority figure. He said, Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With, with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And what does he quote? He quotes Amos chapter 9. And he says, after these things, I will return, and I will, watch this, I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, 
who makes these things known from long ago. Okay, there's a lot there. But one thing that is very plain is that the apostle James, that James and then the apostles that were gathered at the Council of Jerusalem understood that at Amos chapter 9 was prophesying about the emergence of a some sort of rebuilt temple, rebuilt tabernacle, um, in, in verse 16 here, the tabernacle of David, which what does that mean? To rebuild the tabernacle of David. I guess you could say it's you're, you're rebuilding David's uh, posterity, his line, his family, his dynasty, if you would, right? How does that happen? He says, he says, it is because mankind will seek the Lord. It's because the Gentiles will be called by his name. That's amazing. So this is what, I, this is the way that I would view it. What I would say is that the apostolic church was the fulfillment of the prophecy to rebuild the tabernacle of David. What's the evidence of that? The nations are streaming into the church. And fulfillment of this prophecy in Acts chapter, or in uh, Amos chapter 9, that mankind, somehow Amos, way back when, in the, I don't know, when was Amos around? 7th century BC. Uh, Amos was prophesying that in some way, all of mankind is going to seek God. How's that going to happen? Right? Does that mean all of mankind? And what it means there, of course, is not all mankind, no exceptions whatsoever. It means all mankind, meaning Jew, Gentile, male, female, bond, free, Scythian, barbarian, just like Paul says in Galatians 3.28. That is uh, what it means. All of mankind, everyone, not just Israel, but all of mankind. When is that going to happen? Well, when God constitutes a new Israel and people are drawn in as they become a light to the rest of the nations. See how biblical theology is a little bit different than systematic theology? (laughs) Right? We're not just stacking up verse after verse after verse after verse after verse that says something about the deity of Christ. Uh, that's, that's, That's what we need to do, right? But biblical theology is so different because biblical theology is about interpreting the Bible in its context, letting the Bible develop its own thought instead of just looking to, I don't say this in a bad way, but just looking to um, sort of uh, prove our agenda by taking something, you know, because it uses a word or something like that, removing it from its context, right? Um, Like, for example, if you're proving the deity of Christ... And then you use John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And you take that verse to prove the deity of Christ. That is right. That that verse is about the deity of Christ. Or it does prove the deity of Christ. But guess what? That verse is not originally meant to be taken or to be used in that fashion. It is meant to be used in the context in which it was revealed. Right? Until we arrive at the divine logos, which means the word of God, right? Being made flesh among us and dwelling with us, right? <laughs> That's what John 1, 1 is about, right? The, inca- the, the pre-incarnate Christ, meaning Jesus Christ, before he was incarnate, before he took on a human body, right? That this uh, pre-incarnate one took on incarnation and came to 
tabernacle among us. Skaneo is the word for literally to pitch a tent. He literally came to pitch a tent with us in fulfillment of all of the tabernacle imagery of the Old Testament and what it was all about. See, this is why biblical theology is so necessary. Um, okay, I, I haven't even gotten to this. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. I, ha- I went backwards. but uh, So historical continuity um, is, what, is what we take this from. Historical unity comes from Voss's uh, definition, historical continuity. Let me remind us very quickly of Voss's statement yet again, okay? This is what, remember, this is what Gerhardus Voss says biblical theology is. He says, biblical theology, rightly defined, is nothing else than the exhibition of the organic progress of supernatural revelation in its historic continuity and multiformity. So we have not gotten to the multiformity yet, uh, which really has to deal with the different ways that God's supernatural revelation come to us. Uh, can you just think of real, just to kind of peek ahead, can you think of different ways that God's supernatural revelation comes to us? Anyone? Maybe different styles of writing. Different styles of writing. Okay, so consider the literary genres of the Bible. Okay, but you're talking about uh, specifically scripture. The reading of the Word. The reading of any other ways that God reveals himself to us. It, it, what I'm saying, it's all bound in scripture, but in scripture, what are the ways that God reveals himself to us? Creation. Through creation. Okay, that would be like a general revelation, right? Look at the heavens, they declare the glory of God. What else? Well, the Holy Spirit living inside you. It's the Holy Spirit. Okay, so, and what I'm saying is that when you look at the Bible, what are the different ways that God revealed himself to man? Visions, dreams, any other ways? Theophanies. Ultimately, the incarnation, right? That's right. Uh, remember, this is, this, is why, uh, this is why the historically organic nature of Scripture is important, right? Because what we're saying is that God's redemptive deeds and God's redemptive words always go together. So, for example, when Jacob wrestles the angel, that is a redemptive act of God. He didn't, right, uh, he didn't give Jacob a book, right? He did, but not there. What he gave Jacob was a theophany. He wrestled, uh, even Jacob concludes, you know, I have seen God. He knew that he had had this theophany appearance, that there was a divine appearance that had happened through the angel of the Lord, which we know, of course, is a form of a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Um, so there, God is revealing himself to his people through, an, uh, through a theophany, right? Well, why are you laughing? <laughs> That's good stuff. Okay, good. Good. Don't laugh if it's bad stuff. Just tell me it's bad. <laughs> Any questions? Because that's a lot. I feel like I said a lot there. Chris, what do you think? I think it's good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you're supposed to say that. You're a pastor. So would you say that uh, the continuation for Jacob in the organic sense was that he limped away mm-hmm. with a daily reminder? Wow. 
Yeah, what you're saying is that um, is that these redemptive events are oftentimes typologically loaded, right? Yeah. That these redemptive events that God accomplishes throughout redemptive history oftentimes have a very symbolic meaning attached to them. A lot of it, a lot of it does, you know? Um, think about later on, Jacob's dream, right? The ladder, right? Um, and we know that that has redemptive historical significance <laughs> because Jesus picked up on that event and applied the, t- the typology of it to himself, basically saying that he was the latter, right? Um, and on and on and on uh, we can go. So uh, let's see here. Uh, practical uses, historical continuity. So historical continuity, this is what's important here. What's important by this is that <clears throat> what we mean by this is that uh, the Bible has a, a, a the, the history periods of the Bible, they all go together. So again, what we're trying to stay away from is any idea that the Bible is sort of two books, right? There's the Old Testament and the New Testament, never the two shall meet, right? Um Plato said that. He said, God and man, never the two shall meet. Well, that's not true when it comes to God and man, and that's not true when it comes to the Old and New Testament, right? The Old and New Testament are uh, inseparable. They must go together. Um, So the historical unity of the Bible can be seen uh, in many, many, many different ways. You can see it through the different covenants that God gives. Uh, Each covenant is related to the next you can see it through the prophetic messages that are given. Uh, matter of fact, um, when I was teaching through uh, the minor prophets, one of the things that you do when you're teaching the minor prophets is you always have an eye on all the other prophets. <laughs> you read a commentary on the minor prophets, and they're always telling you, um, you know, is Hosea contemporary of Isaiah? Did, did he go before Amos, after Amos, right? But the message, the reason that's important is because the message that is being given uh, what they're detecting is that this message is a historical continuity of what came before, and it prepares us for what comes after. So that's what um, that's what it's about. That's what it's about. I I I wanted to read uh, something here. What time is it? Okay, maybe we can do this. The fact that um, also that 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 this is important is because. When we think about what we're doing in biblical theology, is we're we're figuring out what period of history are we in, and how does that have relevant, you know, purpose for my life? Again, getting back to like the context. Um, let me read you something. This is by Goldsworthy. Listen to what he said. He says, "I'll let Gail get in here so she can hear the quote too. It's not fa- that's not fair. That's not fair. This is by Graham Goldsworthy." He says, many have learned one particular way of dealing with the Bible and have not been exposed to a comprehensive biblical theology as an alternative. Some acknowledge that the Bible is a unity and at the heart of it is the gospel of Christ, but they have never been shown or have tried to work out for themselves the way the various parts fit together. That's what we're trying, that's what we're endeavoring to do. Reading the Bible then, listen, this is, this is what we're all guilty of at times, right? Reading the Bible, then, easily becomes the search for today's personal word from God, which is often far from what the text within the context is really saying. 
Too many Christians go through life with a theoretical unified canon of Scripture and a practical canon consisting of favorite and familiar snippets and extracts removed from their real canonical context. Uh, Maybe a gross example of this. I was watching a video where a Muslim was going throughout the streets of London interviewing Christians and trying to get them stumped on their Bible knowledge, right? And he was doing a really good job. A lot of Christians just didn't, they just didn't know the Bible very well. Well, he came upon one young man, and he began to challenge his Christianity and, and facts and, and, and information, and, and, and just it got too hard, too heavy for, for this young Christian guy, whoever he was. So what this guy ended up doing was he ended up just speaking in tongues and, and hoping that that will impress him, right? And the Muslim, <laughs> and the Muslim was like, what are you doing? <laughs> He's like, you're... You're, you're, and he kept turning, and it was just such a shame. It was just a, a total, you know, a travesty for the gospel, right? It was a bad, it was a bad uh, moment there for a representative, a supposed representative of Christ to, because he was not able to answer the questions, he thought, I know what I'll do. I'll, I'll perform a miracle or a sign like they told me in my Pentecostal church or whatever. And so he proceeded to just speak in blabbering tongues. And I mean, it just totally, totally, I mean... It was horrible. I mean, you see what's going on there. Why did he? Why did he do that? Well, here, here's a question I have for you guys. In First Corinthians chapter fourteen, talk about tongues. Let's get real controversial now. <laughs> the apostle Paul says in verses twenty and twenty-two, tongues is a sign for unbelievers. So wasn't he justified in what he did? Don't you have to have an interpreter? Have an interpreter? In the context of a local church. The context of a local church? You know, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a specific order that has to take, that has to take place in context, like you were saying. Okay. So he shouldn't have done it because he wasn't even in a church. He was just out in the street. You said speaking in tongues is a bad thing? What's that? You said speaking in tongues is a bad thing? Well, um, my personal opinion on tongues, right, uh, my personal conviction is that tongues is a... Uh, a supernatural gift that belonged to the apostolic period of time. That's that's where I have kind of come to land over many, many years. I was hoping somebody wouldn't ask me that question, because <laughs> that's really controversial. So basically, um, your name was Cameron, right? Yeah. Cameron, uh, there are two positions. There are, there are those in, within Christianity. See, I knew this was risky. I was typing this. I thought, this is risky. <laughs> this is why it's risky. <laughs> you know, There's two positions. There are continuists and there are cessationists. There are those within the church that say that all the gifts that you see in, in the New Testament, all of the gifts, uh, gifts of healing, gifts of tongues, gifts of prophesying, all of those gifts are still for today. We should still all be doing all of that. Okay, And then there's a cessationist position that says no. There are certain signs in the, in the Bible, in the New Testament, that stopped at the, uh, at the apostolic age. See, And I... I kind of I started out over here being very, very much into the charismatic world, right? And I slowly kind of found my way more over here, you know, for a lot of different reasons. Biblical theology actually being one of the big reasons why I ended up there. But did you have a question? Well, no, just a, an, an answer for yeah. why it would be wrong. Because yeah. we, we have God's final revelation in a closed canon of Scripture. Okay, yeah, so that would be like a classic cessationist argument is that now that we have the whole bible we don't need a prophet 
to give us any more revelation from God. You see what I'm saying? Well, um, is tongues necessarily prophecy? It's not, nece- it's not necessarily... Let's go back to the, what I was saying. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's really not a, a canonical you know, issue. Yeah, that's the argument. like prophecy. Yeah. That's a counter-argument, is that a prophecy is not necessarily uh, uh, inspired by God. It's not necessarily to be inscripturated. No, tongues. Or, or, yeah, tongues. Well, yeah. Tongues, cause tongues can be speaking a different language, not necessarily heralding new prophecy. Sure. Right. That's, that's an argument. It depends on your view. <laughs> My view, and where I've basically come down, is that it, it was prophetic, that uh, pro- uh, tongues were designed to be uh, revelatory, in other words, it was revelatory, and I take that from the passage in, um, in in that chapter where it goes on to describe the person that speaks in tongues is a prophet. So we'll leave it at that. You can ask me after service, okay? <laughs> because what I was trying to say is that what does biblical theology have to do with this conversation, and what does biblical theology have to do with that guy speaking in tongues on the sidewalk to that Muslim guy? Well, if he would have seen the context, watch turn. First Corinthians uh, chapter fourteen, real quick as we go out. And this is all I'll say about this. And First Corinthians chapter fourteen, beginning of verse twenty. Right? Brethren, do not be children do not be children in your thinking. How about that exhortation, you guys? Wow. What what he's saying is you need to be mature. Right in your th- in your theology, really, that's what he's saying. Because look where he goes. He says, "Yet in evil be infants, Amen. But in your thinking, be mature. In the law, it is written. Watch this now. By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people, and even so, they will not listen to me," says the Lord. So, then tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe. But to unbelievers, but prophecy is is um, is for us. The prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. So, okay, two things are going on there. One, Paul saying, "Look, dwell in the intelligibility, right? Dwell in what is intelligible to everyone, so everyone can profit from it." But when it came when it came to the issue of tongues, from a biblical theology, a redemptive historical point of view. What Paul is saying is that if you would have understand the biblical theology behind tongues and its purpose, and then what does he what does he use to substantiate that? He goes back to Isaiah. See that in verse twenty one, he's actually quoting Isaiah twenty eight. If you look at the context of Isaiah twenty eight, when somebody was what not speaking in a tongue in Isaiah, but the the um, the confusing when he says men of strange tongues. When Isaiah, when God was prophesying through Isaiah those words, do you know what it was referring to? It was referring to the fact that the drunken, debauched culture of Israel could no longer discern clear thinking words from God. They were so confused, so so biblically illiterate, that they could not discern the clear message from God. It was like, it was like, it was like it was just like gibberish coming to them, and what was coming to them was the clear teaching of Scripture. And so, what what the way that Paul is using it is to sh- is to show that when tongues were being used in this fashion in the presence of an unbeliever, it was actually a sign of condemnation to the unbeliever. It was it, it was a symbol that they were condemned to not understand 
the New Testament age and the New Testament prophecies and the New Testament phenomenon and the work of the Spirit. So what do we walk around public, therefore, speaking in tongues to our neighbor to condemn them and to judge them? Of course not. <laughs> but the New Testament age spoken prophecy or spoken tongues as a means to indicate that judgment had come. And this time it came through the church, not through Israel. Remarkable. Yeah. I was going to say, like, uh, over in Mark 16, like 17, verse 17, he says that uh, these signs shall follow them that believe in my name and the cast on bills and he can do songs and take up service. The people who, those were signs for unbelievers. Unbelievers saw that, and a lot of times, even in Jesus' day, it led them to faith in Christ. And some didn't come to faith in Christ, so they would be a sign of condemnation like what you just described. But when we keep going in uh, Isaiah, in uh, 1 Corinthians 14, he talks about if we're in a church congregation and one is prophesying, unbelievers come in. They can hear converted. it. They can hear it, yeah. So clear teaching actually yeah. converts. Yeah, I think there was a... Yeah, that's right. That's right. Clear teaching. And that was a form of prophesying. It wasn't always that somebody had a future-telling word from God, you know, warning of a future event. But a lot of times it was just forth-telling the word of God. I would go so far as to say that when I preach the Bible every Sunday, that, that is a form of prophesying. And that is uh, MacArthur's position. That's uh, Al Martin's position. That's position of a lot of reformers. You know, um, it, it has that secondary. I'm not. I'm not predicting any future events. But because I'm preaching the word of God uh, to you know in public and in uh, by the power of the Spirit, it does have a prophetic effect on the people of God. That's why it's so important to be in the presence of preaching. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, your reference out of Mark chapter 16, you know, we, would, we would debate because you know the variant in that passage in Mark 16 is that um, I take the short reading of Mark 16, not the long reading. So uh, if you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I, don't, I don't take the long reading of Mark to be authentic, in other words. Even in other places where miracles were done, it was a sign of unbelief. That's all yeah. yeah, no, no, that's right. That's like right. When he said tongue, speaking in tongues is a sign for unbelievers. Yeah, he could have done a lot of different things. But but the whole thing was like they were abusing that and using that, right, frivolously when it was like, don't you know what God ordained for that to be? If you go, if you understand what was happening in Isaiah, that's exact, the, the fulfillment of that was really to be in the new covenant church, that we were to be the ones with the clearest message that speak to the people that can't understand the message, you know? Question? Actually, you're onto something I think very big there, because that's the first time we see the tongues but being confused. Right, right. So, no. What, what he's saying, what I'm saying, right? What I'm saying is not the same thing, right? But just like confusion was a sign of judgment there, the unbeliever being confused by the speaking of tongues is a sign of judgment here. You see what I'm saying? So, um, 
Yeah. Yeah. No, because the Apostle Paul, what he's saying is, that's not what we want to do. We want to prophesy clearly to people so everyone can understand us. See what I'm saying? So, that's all I got, guys. We we made um we made very little progress. So, understand. <laughs> I'm sorry. So, this is where we're going. Okay. So, this is what we're going to do, Lord willing. Um, I'm going on vacation. And um, can I get an amen? <laughs> and now we can get Pentecostal. Let's go. <laughs> Start waving. Where's the banners? Right. What I'm saying is that, Lord willing, when I come back from my vacation, we are going to hit the last part of Voss's definition, which is what I what I call the elements of biblical theology. And so we'll do that because that'll give me the ability to recap everything that we've done thus far. Um, remember that what I'm doing, okay, may not seem like that. What I'm doing here is. Um, is supposed to be very simple, okay? And the reason why I say this is because we're, it really has three parts what we're doing. Number one, defining biblical theology. Number two, we're getting into hermeneutics and biblical theology. So Lord, Lord willing, in the coming weeks, after we recap the definition of biblical theology, we're going to get into the to hermeneutics. So we're going to talk about allegorical interpretation. We're going to talk about um, historical grammatical interpretation. We're going to talk about Christocentric interpretation, redemptive historical hermeneutics. That's what we're going to talk about. And then the third part of all of this is going to be actually doing biblical theology. We haven't done any of it yet. <laughs> so the way that I'm going to do that is we're, we're going to take sections within books of the Bible. As I told you before, we're going to look at the protology section of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2. We're going to look at primeval history leading up to the patriarchs. We're going to look at the patriarchal history. We're going to look at the Exodus event those types of things, and we're going to do a redemptive, historical, biblical theology of all of those topics, okay? So that's the three things that we're doing. So just to kind of recap, uh, also get the audio. Also, I wanted to put a plug in here for Red Grace. Robert and I, um, every week now, we've been, what I'm doing is I'm basically... Um, doing biblical theology every week, so we'll talk about some other things. And but every episode so far, just if you don't podcast um, the podcast, um, you may want to start to just just if you want more, because I end up talking a little bit more about stuff there that I didn't get to hear. Um, but that will just kind of help to cement some things, you know. So, Amen. Right, let's go to worship. You around Wednesday morning or before you enter? I'm gone. You're, are you leaving this week? Tuesday, I'm out of here. All right. You want to get together? Yeah. Monday? You want to tomorrow? Let's do it. All right. I'll probably have to bring Camden, but I'll bring good for Bring them. Um, I have a meeting at 11.30. What's happening? Everything cool?